Hey, man, you can have a seat. All right. Good morning. Take your Bibles. Join me in Genesis chapter 23 this morning. Genesis chapter 23. Some extra pieces, parts to show up here because I'm getting old. Yeah, clap if you want. That's all good. <laughs> I've got them here. I'm not going to use them, so you think I messed up names before. Just be prepared. Uh, Genesis chapter 23. We, we are an exciting, at an exciting point uh, in our church this year right now, uh, particularly because, as most of you are aware, and if you're not aware, you're about to become aware, tomorrow begins a national holiday for Uniontown Bible Church, known as Vacation Bible School. That's right. Go, go on. Go, you do that. All right. Go ahead. Everybody give me a wake. And so we are excited about it. Uh, we are excited because we missed it last year. And this year, we are not missing it. We have more than 200 young people signed up, close to 250 young people signed up for this thing. We have more than 100 volunteers. That's the one that makes me excited. So we praise God for that. I'm going to ask and encourage you to be praying for it, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to put feet to your prayer. Um, tonight, so this afternoon, after second service, this place is going to be transformed. There is going to be machinery moved in and out, sets built, all that crazy stuff. This will not look anything like it does right now by the end of the day today. But tonight, at 7 o'clock, we would like to invite all of you that can make it to come back here to the building tonight at 7 o'clock and join us in a time of prayer for Vacation Bible School. And what we will be doing is very simple. We'll gather together, and then we will spread out around the building and pray in each of the rooms and over every place where these young people are going to be sitting and hearing about Jesus Christ and what he did for them. And then we'll gather together, we'll, we'll do one final uh, concluding prayer, and then we'll be on our way, and we will entrust the week into God's hands. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock. I'd invite all of you to be here that can be, and if you can't be here, then please, by all means, join us in prayer where you are. All right? All right, this morning's going to be a little different. I say that a lot in the series of Genesis, I'm finding. Uh, Genesis 23 this morning, I'm actually going to be doing a lot. I'm going to be going 23, 24, and half of 25. Uh, 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, so that, that should make you nervous already. But I think there's some, some commonality in, in, in these stories that we need to be reminded of. And just a couple of high points that I want to make and then some things that I want to emphasize and, and point to and all that good stuff. So there, you'll, I think you'll find it a little bit, little bit different. So Genesis chapter 23, let me begin reading in verse 1. I'm doing something, this is a little different as well. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation this morning, um, just because it's a very readable translation of Scripture, and it's going to help in the actual telling of the story as we go through this. So Genesis chapter 23. Starting in verse 1, it says this. When Sarah was 127 years old, she died at Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Now there, Abraham mourned and wept for her. Okay, so now, just you have to remember, so you go, you go back a number of years. You've got Abraham and Sarah leaving their homeland. They've been uh, journeying with God through many uh, ups and downs, to say the least. And here, at 127, Sarah passes away couple things that are significant about this. First of all is this. She is the only woman in all of Scripture where it tells us how old she was when she died. Okay, so there's, there's something with that. Um, how did she die? We don't know. But I would like to share with you a tradition that I found. Um, I found half of it last week and the other half of it this week. 
Um, so last week I discovered, as we were talking about the sacrifice of Isaac, the question came up, how old was Isaac when he was sacrificed? And a lot of the study that I've done, it's 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, came, back in, came about a, an old Hebrew tradition uh, that said that Isaac was 37 years old when he, uh, dad tried to sacrifice him. Now, there's some small problems with that. Um, I think a 37-year-old probably could have overpowered Abraham at that point. Um, but uh, this, and I'm like, that's just weird. I don't understand where they get that. Where, where they get that is the death of Sarah. Here Sarah is 127 years old, which makes Isaac 37 at this time. The tradition continues, and we had this conversation with a number of you last week. What was the conversation like after Abraham tried to offer Isaac? The tradition is that Abraham and Isaac got home, and I'm not making this up, got home, and they said, and, and Isaac said, hey mom, guess what just happened? And she shrieked seven times and then keeled over dead. So that's a unique tradition I had never heard of before, so some people think that. I doubt that was what happened. Um, I don't want to make light of this. There, Abraham mourned and wept for her. They've been together a long time. They've been through some stuff. And there, Abraham, and actually the, the original language makes it clear, near her. He drew near to her body and wept over her. Let's continue verse 3. And then leaving her body, he said to the Hittite elders, which is where he was staying, here I am, a stranger and a foreigner among you. Please sell me a piece of land so I can give my wife a proper burial. The Hittites replied to Abraham, listen, my Lord, you are an honored prince among us. Choose the finest of our tombs and just bury her there. No one here will refuse to help you in this way. So you see, catch what's going on. Abraham says, I'd like to buy a tomb to bury my wife. And the people of the land are like, no, 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 no. You're an honored guest of ours. Just pick any of our tombs and you can use that one. Okay, continue, verse 7. Then Abraham bowed low before the Hittites and said, Since you are willing to help me in this way, be so kind as to ask Ephron, son of Zohar, to let me buy his cave at Machpelah, down at the end of his field. I will pay the full price in the presence of witnesses, so I will have a permanent burial place for my family. Ephron was actually sitting there among the others. And he answered Abraham as the others listened, speaking publicly before all the Hittite elders of the town. No, no, my lord, he said to Abraham, please listen to me. I will give you that field and cave. Here in the presence of my people, I give it to you. Go, just bury your dead. Abraham bowed again low before the citizens of the land. And he replied to Ephraim, as everybody listened, no, listen to me. I will buy it from you. Let me pay the full price for the field so I can bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, My Lord, please listen to me. The the land is worth 400 pieces of silver, but what is that between friends? Go ahead and bury your dead. So Abraham agreed to Ephron's price and paid the amount he had suggested, 400 pieces of silver. Weighed according to the market standard, the Hittite elders witnessed the transaction. Okay, why in the world did we just read that? There is an an enormous amount of significance happening here. There's a a few things that Abraham says to the the people of the land. He says, I need to bury my wife. And they want to say, "Just, just use one of ours. Just borrow a tomb of ours. And Abraham says, I will not borrow a tomb. Okay, let, let us just give you one of our tombs. I will not receive a tomb as a gift. 
I want to pay full price. And, and actually, as you read, some people believe he overpaid for this piece of land. He overpaid for this cave. Why, why in the world would he do this? Well, we get a hint on that back in verse 9. I will pay the full price, so I will have a permanent burial place for my family. What, what, what Abraham is saying is, I am purchasing, purchasing this thing for full price so that Ephron's descendants can't come back to my descendants and say, your great-great-great-granddaddy stole that from us. Because Abraham said, God made a promise. He said we would be in this land. And so I'm going to begin burying our dead in this land because we are going to live here forever. So after the, the deal has been cut, verse 17, Abraham bought the plot of land belonging to Ephron at Machpelah near Mamre. The, this included the field itself, the cave that was in it, all the surrounding trees. I mean, a very specific list of things here. It was transferred to Abraham as his permanent possession in the presence of the Hittite elders at the city gate. And then Abraham buried his wife. God promised this land to Abraham for generations. So he purchases a property that'll last for generations. What Abraham was saying to everybody that would listen, God said, this is ours. He promised, here I am, and I'm not leaving. Okay, keep that in mind as we continue. Now, chapter 24. See, chapter 23, what was that? Three minutes, four minutes? Come on, piece of cake. What could possibly go wrong from here? <laughs> All right, so chapter 24, let me start in verse 1. It says, Abraham was now a very old man. The Lord had blessed him in every way. So one day Abraham said to his oldest servant, the man in charge of his household, take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Time out. <laughs> so some of you have serious issue with greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> yes, it's awkward. We're just going to leave it like that, all right? All right, you can have your own conversations later about that. This might be the one time I would suggest not using Google. <laughs> just being honest. All right, verse 3. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. And the servant asked, but what if I can't find a young woman who is willing to travel so far from home. Should I then take Isaac there to live among your relatives in the land you came from? No, Abraham responded. Be careful never to take my son there. For the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He'll send his angel ahead of you. He'll see to it that you find a wife there for my son. And if she's unwilling to come back with you, then you are free from this oath of mine, but under no circumstances. Are you to take my son there? So the servant took an oath by putting his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham. He swore to follow Abraham's in instructions. All right. So Abraham is, is, is at this point in life where he is very old. The Lord has blessed him, but Isaac still is not married yet. And so he wants to make sure his son gets a bride. And, and so as he begins this process, he sets some very clear ground rules. He says to the, the servant, you must not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. And you must not allow my son to go back to Ur, where I am from. So instead, what I need you to do is go to Ur, find somebody there, bring her back so Isaac can marry her. And the servant asks a very obvious question. What if she won't come with me? Ladies, if a dude shows up and says, I want to bring you across the country to my master to be his bride, you should not go with him. 
All right, so Sarah, I mean, Rebecca here, that would make sense for this young lady as she meets the servant not to go. So he asks a good question, and Abraham's answer is even better. This is not on you. It's not on me. This is on God. So we'll let him work. Let's keep reading verse 10. So the servant loaded 10 of Abraham's camels with all kinds of expensive gifts from his master, and he traveled to distant Aram Nehraim. There he went to the town where Abraham's brother Nahor had settled. He made the camels kneel beside a well just outside of town. It was evening, and the women were coming out to draw water. That was the customary way that the water would be gotten for the, the families. The women would come in the early in the morning or late in the evening. And so here it's evening. They're getting ready to come draw water. And the servant prays, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please give me success today. Show unfailing love to my master Abraham. See, I am standing here beside this spring, and the young women of the town are coming out to draw water. This is my request. I will ask one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. And if she says, yes, have a drink, and I'll water your camels too. Well, let her be the one that you've selected as Isaac's wife. This is how I know that you have shown unfailing love to my master. And before he had finished praying, he saw a young woman. Okay, time out. He didn't have his eyes closed. He saw a young woman named Rebecca coming out with his, her water jug on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, who was the son of Abraham's brother Nahor and his wife Milcah. Rebecca was very beautiful and old enough to be married, but she was still a virgin. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up again. Running over to her, the servant said, please give me a little drink of water from your jug. Yes, my lord, she answered, and she gave him a drink. She quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder, gave him a drink, and when she had given him a drink, she said, I'll tell you what, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jug into the watering trough and ran back to the well to draw water for all of his camels. I like this next part. The servant watched her in silence, wondering whether or not the Lord had given him success in his mission then at last, when the camels had finished drinking, he took out a gold ring for her nose and two large gold bracelets for her wrists. Whose daughter are you, he asked, and please tell me, would your father have any room to put us up for the night? Well, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, she replied. My grandparents are Nahor and Milcah. And yes, we have plenty of straw and feed for camels, and we have room for guests. So the man bowed low. He worshiped the Lord, praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. He said, the Lord has shown unfailing love and faithfulness to my master, for he has led me straight to my master's relatives. All right, there is a lot there that I'm going to deal with in a couple minutes. Okay, let me continue the story, and then we'll get to that part. Verse 28, the young woman ran home to tell her family everything that had happened. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban, we'll hear about him in a few weeks as well, who ran out to meet the man at the spring. He had seen the nose ring, the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and he heard Rebecca tell what the man had said. So she, he rushed to the spring where the man was still standing beside his camels, and, and Laban said to him, come and stay with us, you who are blessed by the Lord. Why are you standing here outside the town when I, I have a room all ready for you and a place prepared for the camels? Just a little side note. I think we get a little glimpse into Laban's character here. You notice that he greets and runs out to, to greet this servant when, verse 30, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister. He's like, hoo jackpot! Then he runs out. That was a great laugh. I love that one. Sorry. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
<laughs> Verse 32. Little man, if you're visiting with us, I'm not the normal guy. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so verse 32, the man went home with Laban, and Laban unloaded the camels, gave them straw for their bedding, fed them, and provided water for the, for the man and the, camel, and the camel drivers to wash their feet. The food was served, but Abraham's servant said, I don't want to eat until I've told you why I have come. All right, Laban said, tell us. Now, turn the page to verse 48, because what the servant does for the next chunk of verses is he tells them exactly every step along the way that led him to this point. So it's like, bam, every, every step, okay? So he gets to verse 48, and he concludes his story by saying, and then I bowed low, and I worshiped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, because he had led me straight to my master's niece to be his son's wife. So tell me, and he's speaking to, 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 to the men, will you or won't you show unfailing love and faithfulness to my master? Please tell me yes or no, and then I'll know what to do next. And Laban... And Bethuel replied, the Lord has obviously brought you here. So there is nothing we can say. Here is Rebecca. Take her, go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. And when Abraham's servant heard their answer, he bowed to the ground and he worshiped the Lord. You see a pattern in this man's life or what? Then he brought out silver and gold, jewelry, clothing, presented them to Rebecca. He also gave expensive presents to her brother and her mother. They ate their meal, the servant and the man with him. Stayed there o- overnight. Okay, um, and I'll, I'll skip the rest of the chapter just for time's sake. Well, what ends up happening is, is Rebecca goes back, Isaac sees her, um, and they, they, they're married, and, and the beginning of the Isaac and Rebecca story happens after that. But let me do this, though. In everything we just read, what is the point of chapter uh, 24? What is, what's the whole idea in this? Why, why are we reading this? Why are we spending time in this? First of all, all of God's word is profitable. Okay, don't skip pieces just because you're like, don't skip pieces. And this is far from a yawner. This thing's got all kinds of moving parts. I, I want to make direct application this morning because I don't get an opportunity to make direct application in, in these areas very often. And it's to this, to those of you who are here this morning who are not married. I, I think there are some marriage applications that can be found in this passage. Now listen, I want to be very clear. Marriage is not for everybody. You hear that, right? I am not elevating marriage above holiness. Marriage is not for everyone. Relationships are for everyone, even if you're an introvert. We are relational creatures. We have been created to to form relationships with other people and, and enjoy those relationships. So even if you're an introvert, that's not an excuse but it doesn't necessitate the fact that you must be married. There are many who who will not get married. There are some in that group of many who are fine with that, even celebrate that, rejoice over that. But for others, it's a desire in their heart that is left unfulfilled. It's not a bad desire. It's a great desire. But please understand this, marriage is not the most important thing about a person. If you feel like God has married in your future, I want to share a couple of, of application points out of the text with you this morning. If you're with us this morning and you are married, these are not points that you're supposed to use to beat up your single friends with. This is an invitation to you to enter into their lives, to walk alongside them, to love them, 
as they walk through this journey, okay? So the first application that you can find in this story about marriage for our single brothers and sisters. First, forget the diamond ring, go for the nose ring. Okay. That thing is as clear as day. <laughs> now, I think the first thing we see is you need to bathe that desire in prayer from beginning to end. You should just be not anguishing over it, but you should just be dumping it at the foot of the throne of God over and over again. God, what would you have for me? Now, now when I say bathe it in prayer, don't bathe it in superstition. I think sometimes you'd be like, oh, so he said, no, I just want this to happen. So you can't have as one of your prayer requests, Lord, when I go to the store, to the checkout dude, if he asks me paper or plastic and then coughs, he's the one. Okay, no, no. Ask God to keep leading you, to keep directing you, to, to open your eyes. Don't allow yourself to freak out every time you think God has given you an answer. Do what he did. He watched. He was optimistic, but he was cautiously optimistic. And then, and this should be true even for us married folk, thank God for his activity in your life. Or, Thank God for his inactivity in your life in that particular area because that means that's what's best for you right now. And so, so, so bathe this decision in prayer. And, and I need to be sensitive about this next application point, but I want to be as clear as I can. Okay, so let me, this is, this is and those of you who know me long enough, you know this is going here eventually, so here it goes. Um, first, one of the applications we can make here is, is if you are looking for a spouse, do not look for a spouse in an unbeliever. Okay, I'm going to get there and explain that, so don't buckle or check out already. Why? No, let me not go why. Let me go this. What's a, what's a Christian? What's an, maybe it's best that you understand what a Christian is. A Christian is not somebody who attends church. It's not somebody who is a member of a church. It's not somebody who's been baptized. It's not somebody who does good things or, or tries to live a good life. Christians should do good things and try to live a good life, but that's, that doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian is somebody who knows and confesses that they're a sinner. A Christian is someone who knows that as a result of being a sinner, they deserve God's judgment. A Christian is someone who knows that they cannot escape God's judgment on their own. A Christian is someone who, who knows that in love, God saw them in their greatest need and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself the penalty of their sin, to bear their punishment, their consequences for their sin. Christian is someone who knows that there is no escape from God's wrath except that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead. So a Christian is someone who has turned from their sin and turned toward Jesus Christ in faith, and the only standing that they cling to before God is a standing that has been given to them and purchased for them by Jesus Christ on the cross. The Christian understands how crazy it is that God would love them how crazy it is that, that Jesus Christ would die for them. How crazy it is that the Holy Spirit would dwell inside of them. And as a result of trying to wrap their head around that, they see God as their greatest treasure in all of earth. So that's what a Christian is. So when I say, one of the applications we can make here is when you're looking for a spouse, do not look for an unbeliever. Let me, let me be very clear. Um, where do I see that? Okay, first of all, you see it at the very beginning. 
when uh, Abraham says, do not allow my son to marry one of these Canaanite, Canaanite women. That's verse 3. Um, let me deal with the aberrant theology that's flowed out of that verse first. This verse, when, when, when Abraham says, do not allow my son to marry a Canaanite woman, it is not a verse that is talking about the evils of interracial marriage. If you have heard that, wash your soul, because that is a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of the distinctions that we make based on biological characteristics such as skin color. The Bible knows nothing of that. There's one race. Okay, okay, come on, okay, okay, good. Yay, God, okay, so there's one race, okay? We've all been made in the image of God. We all share a unity in Adam and Eve. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. Acts 17 verse 26 says that from one man, God has made every nationality. So the focus here from Abraham's mouth to his servant's ears is not about ethnicities, it's not about cultures, it's not about racism. The, 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 the focus of Abraham is quite simple. Isaac was to marry somebody within the faith. Isaac was to marry somebody who was in the promise of God, the protection of the promise of God. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 9, you see the promise that I'm talking about. God spoke a promise through one of Noah's descendants, and that was Shem. And that happens to be Abraham's lineage. And so as the servant goes back to Abraham's hometown, he's going back to Shem's lineage, Abraham's lineage, and he's trying to find a wife within that, that culture of promise. And he says, do not marry one of the Canaanite women. Why? You go back to that same passage in Genesis 9, what you find is that the Canaanites were the descendants of Ham, and they were specifically cursed because of their sin following the episode on the ark. So this is not about interracial marriage. This is not about interracial dating. This is about simplicity. It's about staying within the umbrella of the promise of God. Uh, I believe that the application from that, I believe the application you find in like 1 Corinthians 7, talking to, an un, oh, sorry, to a, a believer uh, who is widowed, you can certainly get married, but get married within the household of faith, get married with, to another believer. 2 Corinthians 6, which has been grossly misapplied at times, but don't be unequally yoked. I think the reason for that is this. If you are a Christian, then God is truly your greatest treasure, and that's who you're going to continue to run towards. An unbeliever will not share with that treasure with you, and so they're going to be running the other way. Now, okay, maybe the other way doesn't look like that. Maybe the other way looks like that, which is fine and good at the beginning, but you give it some, some mileage, and it gets a little difficult. So, so picture marriage as the ultimate hand-holding and so what God is saying is don't, don't be unequally yoked because if you're trying to hold hands and you're running this way and they start running that way, that unity that you're supposed to experience in that marriage, that unity you're supposed to experience as you both run towards that same treasure will be destroyed. There's a lot more to say about that. I certainly don't have time to do that. So I think that's one of the keys is to marry um, a Christian. And I think you should be looking to be married to someone based on character based on character. There is beauty in Rebecca, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, I'm going to keep moving because I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> the striking features of Rebecca, though, in this passage are about her character. She's kind and caring. Let me come alongside you and serve you. She's, she is a hard worker, which I don't think we understand. I didn't understand until this week. Um, uh, we were in staff devotions on Wednesday, and somebody was like, do you know how much camels drink? 
And so we started doing some research. So I'm going to go super conservative. And when I say super conservative, I'm going to take the most conservative number that I found in my research and divide it in half. So I am way conservative on this, okay? A camel will drink 15 gallons of water. Now, that is, the range is somewhere between 30 and 80 gallons of water. But I'm going to say 15, again, because I don't want to exaggerate, because I'm a pastor, and that is definitely a besetting sin that we have. So we're going to go 15 gallons. 10 camels. Do you know how much, this is a trivia fact that I learned this morning, actually. A gallon of water weighs approximately 8.4 pounds. Do the quick math. That's 120 pounds of carrying per camel. There's 10 camels. That's 1,200 pounds. And it's not like she's sitting at the faucet. Reet, reet, reet. It says she has to keep going down to the spring and coming back to the spring and back. Rebecca could work some of you under the table. She's also marked by hospitality. Absolutely, come back to the house. We have plenty of room. So base it on character. And I want to, let me close on this one. Be involved in community where the counsel of others will be helpful for you as you're going through that process. Be involved with others to speak life and wisdom into you as, as, as you're considering who you should be married to. Rebecca's not making a decision alone in a vacuum. She's gone home to, to mom and dad and her brother. Um, somebody, I heard somebody preaching on this this week, and they said, well, the, the, the concept is this, ladies, find a dude in your life who will, who will be able to get to know this other guy, because game recognizes game. The fellas can see what the other fellas are up to. Fellas, same goes for you. Trust me, we're not that smart. We need godly women in our lives who can point out characteristics in this young lady who we might be finding appealing at the moment. So have those relationships where that counsel is. So what's the whole point? Is the whole point about getting married? No, I think the whole point I haven't even talked about yet. And man, I'm running out of time. So this is going to be adjusting on the fly. So what happens is you try to do three chapters in one shot and talk about it the whole time. So, okay, um, Abraham's mode of operation. You know, Abraham in the past, every time a problem came up, every time it got a little difficult, what did Abraham do? I'll figure it out. Tell him you're my sister. Good plan. But suddenly here, he's recognized who God is. He's recognizing what God's done. He's recognizing what God has promised. Look at verse 7 of chapter 24. The Lord, the God of heaven, who has taken me from my father's house in my native land, he has solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He's going to take care of this. And if I'm wrong, we're going to do something else. That's growth in Abraham's life, isn't it? So, so let me, and I know this is crazy. You're like, there's no way he's doing this. He is. Look at verse, chapter 26. Just kidding, 25. Abraham then marries another wife, verse 1. His name is Keturah. They have a, a number of other children. That's important to know when you get to verse 5. Abraham, in spite of the fact he had all of these other stepchildren, <laughs> um, the sons of his concubines, the sons of his wife, the new wife, Abraham gave everything he owned to his son Isaac. Why? Because God told him, through that boy... That boy right there, that's where the promise is going to flow. And so he continued the faithful response to that promise. He lived, verse 7, for 175 years, and he died at a ripe 
old age, it's a New Living Translation, having lived a long and satisfying life, he breathed his last and he joined his ancestors in death. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, where his wife Sarah was. So, what's up with that? Hebrews 11, verse 13 says this, These all, speaking of the heroes of the faith, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised. Abraham dies here. What part of the promise did he receive? He's got a son. Does he see all the descendants? No, his son just got married. Does he have the land? Nope, not yet. He bought a cave. Does that count? So, so, so he died having received the promise, but not receiving the, the actual fulfillment of the promise. And this is where I want to end this morning. And so, so this is going to be a little awkward, but, um, and you're not going to hear this very often. I want you to take out your phones. It's not a trick. I'm not going to have you like throw them or anything. It's, there's a reason. That's how I want to make application here. Abraham, when he comes to the end of his life, doesn't get the fulfillment of the promise. But he sure got a lot of goodness, a lot of kindness. So while we don't get the fullness of the promise of God, it will come. And it will come because God's promises aren't exhausted by death. Death is sin's greatest punch. And even that just staggers us a little because in reality we get right back up because just like Christ, we'll live again. So the promise continues and it will continue. And even though we haven't received the fullness of the promise in Jesus, we receive what I call the spillover goodness of the promise. Picture it this way, in heaven is the cup that holds all the fulfillment of our promises. But that cup is so very full, it's just gushing over the edges. And we're here receiving that. Ephesians 2 verse 7 says, we will receive the immeasurable riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. It will be poured out on us for all of eternity. John Piper says in that passage, when eternity ends, God will have run out of ways to show you grace. But right now, we're still able to taste and see that God is good, aren't we? The kindnesses that we get to enjoy today are just a small part of the kindnesses that we will enjoy in the future. As you look at Abraham, he's got relationships that are precious to him. Man, I, I, I hate death. It, it, it's... I hate watching people I love go through the mourning process, but at the same time, the opposite side of that coin, man, there is something to celebrate in that because you had a relationship worth mourning. And there's some people who don't even have that. And so, so you had those relationships. He had that marriage with Sarah that he mourned. He had his boys, and it shows you how much he really loved Ishmael, and Ishmael loved him. He'd already sent him away, but on his death, Ishmael returns so that he can participate in his burial. He's got relationships with his family. He's got experiences. I don't know if he looked at the travel from home to a no, who knows where he's going. It's like, hey, I love to travel. I don't know if he looked at it that way. I don't think he looked at, hey, look at the hiking trip me and Isaac got to take. I don't think he looked at it that way either. But think about this. He had victory in battle that he had never even really prepared for. He got to be a soldier. Not just a soldier, but a soldier that overthrew a superpower because of God's hand in his life. He had protection when he was somewhat unaware of the protection. He got protected by God even when he created problems, lying about Sarah being his sister twice. He got to see answered prayer 
Lot being delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah. You get to see Isaac born. He, he lived out the verse that I love in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Who, what kind of God is it that we have that he is so near to us that he hears us when we call? We've got to be careful not to be so set on this that we forget all this. I have a file that's saved on my laptop hard drive. And what I try to do is just jot in there all these good things that God has given to me. Um, at the very top of the list is, I've had the privilege of kissing the most beautiful girl in the world. In case you're wondering, that's not you, it's my wife. I love you, but yeah. But the second one, I've had the privilege of having the most beautiful girl in the world really mad at me. You know why? Because that means she really knows me. I've had the privilege of parenting four amazing kids. I have the, the privilege of walking through the heartache with my wife as we miscarried three of our children. I've had the privilege of standing next to people as they pass into glory. I've had the privilege of standing at a funeral and preaching the good news and seeing people who otherwise would never have stepped foot in church, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving Christ their hearts. I've had the privilege of just being able to stand outside in the rain. Do you realize how cool that is? Just for a moment, try to figure out the whole scientific thing about how rain happens, and then just stand there and let it wash over you. There's, there's so many good goodnesses and kindnesses that you and I have been able to experience. It says of Abraham, he died full of days. Your days have been full. You've received blessings and goodness from God, and most of which you're not even aware of. Because you haven't stopped to consider it. So what I want to encourage you to do right now for the next moment or two, I'll, let's be quiet. I'm going to throw a number up on the screen, and I'd like you to text that number. Now, I can't read it right now because we don't have time. But what I want to do, without your name, your names won't be attached to it. I just want to copy and paste the things that you have written in there of how you've seen the goodness and kindness of God spill out of that cup of the immeasurable riches of God's grace to you, onto you in the present moment. And I want to put that, just that, I'm going to post that on Facebook. Like, look at how good God has been to us because I think too often we forget. Our hearts are too often set on the finality instead of being present. If we would just be present, I think we'd be more aware. So just for the next moment or two, you go ahead and consider what it is that God has given to you, his kindness, and if you will, count your many blessings. We'll accumulate those and share those on Facebook later so that you can be encouraged with those as well. I'll pray in just a moment. Uh, actually, you know what? If the worship team wants to come up now, that'd be great.